Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, our King, our Savior. And Lord, as we continue our time of worship, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would inspire us towards more of you. And God, as we gather as your people, that you would be glorified and in you we would find great joy and life and satisfaction. Father, I pray for any man, woman, or child in this room today that is yet to place their hope and trust in Jesus. Father, that you would show who you are to them today, that they might turn from their sins and hope in Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat. There are a lot more of you here than I expected, right? Anybody else surprised? Looking around? Maybe you're here just kind of getting some forgiveness before tonight. I don't know. No fireworks in your neighborhood and you even blow them up. You've already bought some. I understand. I've heard your confessions. Um, if you have a Bible with you, open with me to Acts chapter 2. Um, what I'm going to do is share two key passages that I, I spent a lot of time in as we were planting Christ Community Church, and then I want to share with you the vision of where we're going and where we hope to be or becoming more like these things by the year 2020. If you're visiting with us today, I'm really glad to have you. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here, I'm the pastor of preaching and vision, and I, I love talking about vision. I'm obsessed with what God has been doing and calling us to, um, and we began the process of planting Christ Community Church over eight years ago. Uh, in April, we'll be celebrating our seven-year anniversary of corporate public gatherings, but it was in November of 2009, I began meeting with a group of people out here, of which none of them are still here um, at the church, but uh, it's amazing to see how God early on with the core groups um, of a church plant often serves as scaffolding um, of the church and uh, allow the church to grow and take off. I was rejected by Robert Panter in probably January of 2010. He, they were already somewhere else, and then later God won, and so did we, uh, and glad y'all are still here, Panthers. Uh, amen. Love you. Uh, went to Witch Witch. Buying a man a witch, which goes a long way, just for you all to know that, if you ever plan a church. Um, the first meeting we had was in the end of January 2010 at the La Quinta on 1488. We had almost 20 people show up to, who were interested in the church. Uh, how many of you were at that La Quinta meeting, uh, besides my wife? Anybody? No, none of you were. Um, it's amazing to me. Nobody here was here back then. Uh, I had I, people ask me what's church planning like, and I'm like, it's like seventh grade all over again, getting dumped time and time again. It's not me, it's you, or it's you, uh, and, and getting broken up with. But um, the, the reason why we planted Christ Community Church wasn't because um, I thought I, I was something special or had something unique. The reason we planted Christ Community Church is because um, there's a lot of people in this area, and many need to know Jesus, and, and so we. we felt compelled and called to this area and began planting, and uh, it's been some of the most difficult yet joyful eight plus years of our life together uh, here, and uh, we're super excited about where the Lord is taking us. Um, rather than this be one of those rah-rah, yay troops, uh, vision casting things where we all get thrilled for 2018, I really just want to reflect on God's Word and then share with you uh, six main gauges on the dashboard of where we're going for vision. Um, I taught a series, if you weren't here or missed a few of the sermons, I, I taught a three-part series called We Are C3 a few months ago. You can go to our website, c3.church, and you can watch 
or listen to that sermon series, and I encourage you to do so if this is your church home or you're considering it to become your church home because I want you to understand what this looks like unpacked. But I'm going to give you kind of a bigger picture view today as we are going into 2018 with the vision and view moving towards the year 2020. And so if you have your Bible, go with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. When I was in seminary, I had a professor, and you've heard me say this before if you've been around for a while, say, um, how many of you want to have an Acts 2 church? And we all raised our hand, like, who doesn't want an Acts 2 church? If you're not familiar with Acts 2, Acts 2 is the story where the church began following Pentecost after Jesus rose to the right hand of the Father, his Holy Spirit, um, the Spirit of God came and fell on the disciples, and they began gathering, and powerful things started happening. And so, like, any Christian that reads Acts is like, I want to be a part of an Acts 2 church, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of an Acts 2 church? And my professor smushed our bubble, and he said, it's impossible to fully have an Acts 2 church today. Literally, I thought half the class was going to pack up their stuff and walk out. And he said, the reason being is we're not in first century Jerusalem. We're not facing the same persecution that they were facing, both from the Jewish people and the Romans. It's a different season at a different time. He says, however, that's where everybody stopped packing up and said, there are principles and vision in Acts chapter 2 that could guide your church today. And so, rather than me beginning with my vision for our church, or the elders' vision for our church, I want to I begin with God's vision for his church as it began to gather. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, many of us, we live by what should we do? How do we do this? How do we make this happen? But I want to begin by reflecting on what God was doing in Acts chapter 2. God was saving people. God was drawing people together. And because of who God is and what he has done through Jesus, his people were responding to those things. Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church, was a response to God. Not a doing of people to make something happen for God or with God, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, was a response to what God was doing. And, and for me, that, that's, that's paradigm shifting for me. Because so many times as a capable man, I want to do things for God, but we need to slow down and say, what has God done? What is God doing? And then how do we participate with that? This gathering of this awe of who God is, seeing the power of God manifest in each other's lives. Them selling things and giving to each other as they had need was not a political statement. It wasn't the first form of communism. It was a shift in valuation that who God is is so valuable and so consequential that our earthly possessions don't hold us the way they used to. They don't own us the way they used to. There's a greater thing. What, what matters to God began to matter to these people more than their stuff, more than their own personal happiness, and, and it, it caused change and transformation. 
There was prayer. There was worship. There were miracles. There was salvation. There was intentional Christ-centered community taking place. And this was happening because of who God is and what all God has done and is doing and has promised to do. And so when we read Acts chapter 2, we have to understand that the Christian faith is simply a response to who God is and what He has done and what He is doing. It's not something we do to work for and manifest and force God. And you can watch religious TV and they, they preach this, this false gospel of you've got to do stuff to make God do stuff. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we could not do anything and so God did everything through His Son Jesus. Amen? Yeah, we can agree to that. We could do nothing, so God did everything through His Son Jesus. And boys and girls, I want you to understand, I know there's kiddos in here today, that what we're talking about today isn't just for mom and dad. It's specifically for you as well. That the gathering of God's people, even on New Year's Eve, is for the purpose of, we need, uh, of declaring that we need God and being dependent on God. And so Acts chapter 2 was a foundational place in this idea of church planting to come and establish a place of response to who God is and what God is doing. Therefore, walking in obedience to God and creating habits to pursue God are more positioning to experience God than to try to earn from God. And so this was one of the foundational texts that why are we doing this? Why are we gathering on Sundays? Well, it's because God has done something amazing by sending His own Son, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf so that through Jesus we might become right with God. And as we've been made right with God, we gather to celebrate that rightness with God that God has accomplished. And then we go on mission together to help other people meet Jesus Himself as well. The second passage was in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. So what does the church look like? Acts chapter 2, the, the church is a response to God's proactive solution through His Son Jesus. The movement and working of His Holy Spirit. The gathering of His people and community. So what then should the church do? How, how is the church structured? In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul's explaining to the church the role of different gifts in, uh, in, in offices in the church. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we need to focus on that. Verse 12. To equip the saints... You know who the saints are? Now, if you grew up in like a Roman Catholic background, you, you have different saints that you, uh, you pray to. And that's not who we're talking about here. The saints are referred to all who trust in Christ. You are considered a set-apart, separate one. A gathering of God's saints for the purpose of God's kingdom. The role of leadership in the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To help you identify your spiritual gifts. To help you reprioritize your life so that God and His kingdom become a, an increasing priority for you. To lean into that reality and begin to experience the joy of leaning into your created and redemptive purposes. The challenge is in a culture like ours, we have a tendency to be spectators. And so typically, you sit in the audience and a guy like me gets up here and a guy like Gatton gets up here and, and we do religious stuff and you receive religious stuff and then you go on about your week and then we go prepare more religious stuff to bring back next week. 
And if you really want a gold star in faith, then you might help us do religious stuff. Right? You'll sign up to do religious stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. When we serve, when we give, when we show up, when we worship, it's response to who God is. It's a declaration of who He is and, and, and our need for Him and our love for Him. And so the people who are called and uniquely gifted and maybe even to an extent set apart, it's not that they go get to enjoy God more. It's that they come back and take what they've received and give it. So that everyone here, young and old, can gather and, and grow and be equipped to participate in the game. To enjoy their role. My primary calling isn't to do religious stuff for you. My primary calling is to equip you to enjoy God more, to help other people enjoy God in the way that He's created you and redeemed you. And see, many churches, what they do is they have to staff up with tons of people. I mean, I know churches that have, and if you've been at this church or you're currently a member of a church like this, I'm not making fun of you. But an audiovisual pastor... There's several issues there, but we don't have to make these paid roles for all these different things. And, and, and many of us think like, well, we just don't have time for that. I'm not against having staff. We have a great staff. We have a large staff for the size of church we have. But the way I see it in the Bible is there's those who are ministering according to the Word of God, praying, caring for, equipping, and there's administers. Those who are doing administrative, preparatory work, going ahead, deacons and deaconesses, preparing a way for the avenue and the rails for ministry to take place. And so the leaders of the church are meant to care for you, but also to equip you to do the work of ministry. What? What is the work of ministry? For building up the body of Christ. That's the effect. Not for you to feel better about yourself, but for you to be a part of what God's calling us to do by building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up in love. The aim is to grow to become more like Christ and equip men and women and children as they become followers of Jesus to identify their giftings to be then implemented in the work of building up others. If your faith is tired, if your faith is stagnant, if your faith is nominal, if your faith is more of a burden than a delight, then maybe you're not exercising it. Maybe you're not engaging it. Maybe you're not proactively seeking ways to utilize how God's gifted you for the sake of ministry. And so with that balance of Acts chapter 2, coming together, responding to who God is, and then the idea of Ephesians Forward, that we're building each other up, growing in our understanding of who God is. Here's the beautiful thing. God is infinite, and we are finite. And so, boys and girls, here's what I mean. God is limitless, all-powerful, all-knowing, everything, and we are limited. 
And so if you feel like there, you know all that you need to know about God, the good news is there's more of God to know and have. There's always more of God. But why would God continue to entrust himself to men and women who aren't doing what he commands? He gives an apportion to the need. And part of sacrificing and giving and serving in response to his sacrifice and his giving and his serving allows us to walk more nearly to him. And so that was the tension of and desires of planting Christ Community Church. And we are a part of a network called Acts 29, which is a network of churches that plant churches. And we've already been a part of three church plants since we started seven years ago. And we intend to raise up church plants from within into our community and in our state, in our region, in our nation, and around the world. We're currently partnering with a church plant in Bath, England. We're partnering with Feet Teach Hope, which works with church planters in Kenya. Our church plants in San Marcos, our church plants in College Station, one of the churches we help sponsor that's planted in Cyprus, are committed to that same vision and calling. Churches that plant churches that plant churches. 10% of everything you give to Christ Community Church goes towards church planting. Helping these churches, being a part of that. So when you give 10% of your income, 10% of that goes towards helping other church plants beyond the walls of Christ Community Church. So last year, I believe, we gave over $60,000 towards church planting, an additional fifteen dollars to $20,000 to other missions and benevolence. We're serious about that. We're serious to, to build that up in there. And so as C3, and C3 came about, we didn't plant as C3, we planted as Christ Community Church, but we got lazy very quickly. And so we're like, we'll just call it C3. So the point is, C3 isn't Casey's church C3 is us. We who call this place home, we are C3. I never planted a church so that I could have a stage to perform on on a weekly basis. That's not the calling. We planted C3 so that you and I might come together as God's people, being equipped and sent, struggling through life and enjoying God more through serving Him in obedience. Our mission statement is we exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. Part of growth in the faith leads to multiplication. Our vision for seeing this happen over the next couple years is that we are going to fight to make disciples in authentic community. We are not there yet. We are fighting for that. We are striving towards that. But listen... We don't have full authentic community. We have pockets of it happening in the church. But a lot of those pockets that are starting to experience it have taken years here to form. They say in our area it takes about 18 months to form a real meaningful relationship. I would argue it takes about three years to start having authentic Christian relationship. But it's worth it. We endeavor to make disciples of Jesus Christ in authentic community. There's six things that I'm going to share with you this morning. If you have a camera, you want to take pictures of the the notes, you can. I can post it also on our Facebook group. Um, We can put it in our email newsletter. But these are six gauges 
that we're monitoring. And as a pastor of vision, this is something I take very seriously. Every decision I'm making is seen through these gauges. Is it helping us to make disciples in authentic communities? These six gauges help us to determine where we're, we're really excelling, where we're struggling, and how we need to focus more on those things. And so I want to offer some clarity to that, and I understand that it will be as clear as mud for some people today, but you'll hear me hammering it for the next couple years. And this is how we gauge it. This is what the elders and I are, are looking through. This is what the staff is considering as we go forward. These six things doesn't mean we're there yet, or we've even done a good job yet, just to be clear. But I want to be very clear on where we're going. First of all, we, are pray- we want to be a place of prayer. The challenge of being a place of prayer beyond our busyness, and I'll talk about busyness a little bit more later, beyond the the challenge of being a busy place is that we're quite competent and able people here. There's a high level of education or success in our community, and so when we're competent and we're able, prayer is an afterthought or the final resort, the last resort, not our first response, both individually, as families, and as a church family. Stephanie and I, when we were out of town on a retreat this this summer, um, one of the things we talked about that was really burdening me was I wanted to be a place of prayer. I remember my friend Neil years ago, uh, he's a guy who prays, he hears from God, he does all these things. I said, what was the best book you read on prayer? He was like, I don't know, there's a few of them, but really, um, the way you you improve in prayer is you pray. That's how you get better, you pray. And so... I started praying. I started a prayer journal. I, I had this little, this little folder thing of note cards that I, I had several years ago that I would write down prayer requests for my wife and for my daughter Braylon before Abigail was born. And actually, Abigail was one of the prayer requests because we struggled with infertility. And I went back through recently when I was cleaning out my office and noticing all the answers to prayer that God has given. But being a place of prayer, one of the, the main obstacle, I think, is we're competent and able people. And so before we pray, we go and fix. And one of our elders, Angus uh, Fursden Welsh, has been a huge blessing to our elder board by reminding us to stop and pray. We're like, golly, we're behind on budget. Who do we need to call? Who do we need to shake down? What do we need to do? And he's like, oh, oh, oh. we can get strategic in a minute. Let's pray. And we pray. Angus, thank you for that. Thank you for helping lead us that direction. And not like the other elders don't pray, but he, he's done very, been very pronounced. John has called us to prayer. Rick has called us to prayer. We, we are praying over our people. So the way that we're beginning to cult, cultivate a culture and environment of prayer is by praying. So one of the ways that we started that is when we came back uh, this, this fall, Stephanie and I started a prayer meeting. It's usually the first Thursday, sometimes it's the second Thursday, occasionally a Sunday afternoon. Johnny and Maria Green have been uh, here since early, early on. They've been prayer warriors for us. They've been praying for you before you even came here. And we began, began praying. We made it very difficult because everyone's concerned if the pastor hosts it, then people actually show up. And so we said, no child care, one hour, just praying, and we're not really praying for each other. It's not a support group. That's, you can do that in community group time. We're getting together. We're going to pray to God. And we're going to follow the Acts model. We're just going to begin somewhere. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And Johnny and Maria helped put together a guide each, each month. We, we throw in some extra things we need, and we gather and we pray. I've heard of some community groups that are starting to take nights and have a night of prayer in their group. So we're starting to cultivate more and more of an environment 
of prayer, praying together as a staff, praying together in families. So we're not there yet. I would hardly say that C3, man, that place is a place of prayer. I would not say that about us yet. But we are a place of prayer. That's where we want to go to. That's where we are headed. That's one of the gauges of knowing that, hey, we're, we're living into who God's calling us to be in this place. In Acts chapter 2, it talked about how they gathered and, and said prayers and prayed together and prayed for each other. And they weren't rushed. They carved out time, made it a priority to pray, to acknowledge God and to tell God um, that He is awesome and to be dependent on Christ, to begin to cultivate. Here's one thing I've noticed since I've been praying more frequently and more often. I have more hope and I'm more expectant to see God do things. And when things happen, it's less tempting for me to take credit for it. Like people showing up today on New Year's Eve. It's an answer to prayer. And some of y'all are like, what else are we going to do? You got donuts and coffee, boom, breakfast is served. Amen. But it's an answer to prayer, and so it's more of a celebration of who God is and what He's accomplishing rather than our ability to make it happen. So we have a monthly prayer meeting right now. Community groups are beginning to prayer. But my hope is eventually we'll get a few of you on Sunday mornings to say, we're going to start a prayer group for the service. And we're going to pray over the chairs. And we're going to maybe have one or two people back praying for the Spirit of God to convict hearts and to bring life change and to bring hope. And that, that people will start saying, like, I want to take ownership of teaching people to pray to actively praying and not just studying prayer, but doing it. And so one of the ways we're, we're going to gauge going to making disciples in authentic community is by growing and becoming a place of prayer. I think one of the reasons we don't experience more power and more salvations and things like that in the church is because we're lacking in prayer. We're hoping in our strategies rather than God's ability to make these things happen. Let's be a place of prayer. The second gauge is this. We are broken for the lost in our community and around the world. We have an awareness that there are those outside of Christ that don't know Jesus, that if they died today, they would spend an eternity separated from God in hell. Ongoing eternal torment for their sin. And the obstacle, I think, for us being aware of that is we're really busy and we're self-absorbed. We're very busy. Right? And I think we also, many times, we can't gauge theologically because we are overstimulated informationally. We have too much information. I mean, most people, when they wake up in the morning, they begin either with the news or with emails or social media. I've been guilty. I've been guilty of that. So I'm not, hear me, all this stuff, like, I'm not going to give myself too much credit, but I'm part of the problem here too, just so you know. I can get so wrapped up caring for Christian people that I don't care about lost people. And when I planted the church, I had a passion to see people here who are far from God come to know Jesus Christ. And last spring, when we were going through our time with intentional churches, I felt deeply convicted that I was so wrapped up in, in strategy and stuff for Christians that I, I just didn't care that my neighbors didn't know God. And if you're my neighbor, then I'm sorry. And as your pastor, I'm sorry. If you read Luke chapter 15, and we're not going to go there today, but just be reminded of that. If, if you think that, well, God doesn't care about that. Yes, He does. In Luke chapter 15, it talks about a woman who loses a coin, she scours the entire house until she finds it. When she finds it, she celebrates. And it talks about a man who loses one lamb out of a hundred. A one percent loss rate is awesome when you're dealing with stupid animals. 
Yet he went and he pursued and he sought after the one. And you see the story of the prodigal son that when he rejects his dad, tells him he wishes he was dead, takes his earnings and goes away. He comes back and the the father celebrates and the older brother who had been well behaved in his own eyes was mad that there was a celebration. We are broken for the loss in our community and around the world, not in a judgmental way, but we're, it's more of a self-awareness way. That we're aware how the Lord is working in us and how He's inviting us to work through us for the sake of His kingdom. We're sold out to the idea that the foundational problem in the world is sin and the only solution is Jesus. When we see things happening, when we see people groups doing things that we don't agree with, we begin to understand their sin and ours and begin praying and hoping and thinking of ways that the gospel might compel us to bring the solution, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. Like my friends in Amarillo say, they, they, um, they, they lead City Church Amarillo, which feeds over 2,000 meals a week during the summer to inner city children. But their mantra is, help without hope is no help at all. That social justice, absent of the gospel, is really no justice at all. That the gospel who Christ is and Christ being the solution compels us then to engage with social issues for the sake though of understanding theologically and philosophically that the primary issue is an anthropological issue, people, and hermardiology issue, sin. And that there's one solution, Jesus. And that's why I believe and am convinced that the local church is the primary vehicle which God desires to change communities. And that's why I'm sold out to the idea of churches and church planting. It's throughout Scripture, God utilized the church to be mobilized people to bring transformation to a community. Currently, I think we're aware that there are people who don't know God in our midst, but I don't know many of us that are really burdened by that fact. And I think at times, and I'm going to say a phrase that some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, it's okay, but for those of you who do, I hope it sits. Sometimes I think our Reformed theology is misunderstood and therefore leads to inactivity. Just because we believe God is saving people and God will save those who will be saved, He also commissions us to go and tell. The hope for us, though, is that we'll begin to get in the game saying, I'm going to learn how to communicate about my faith. I'm going to begin sharing my faith. I'm going to use my words as we tell our children to do. Use your words. Use your words to tell other people about Jesus. Oh, my, my hope is in 2020, many of you are baptizing friends, neighbors, children that you have personally led to the Lord and taking responsibility over their discipleship. We're a place of prayer. We are broken for the lost in our community and around the world. Number three, we live a Christ-exalting life together. We live a Christ-exalting life together. Much of Christianity in cultures like ours are highly individualistic. I'm not being fed. I'm not being challenged. I'm not growing I, 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 Jesus Christ, yes, He loves you and He saves you, but He saves us. Salvation is for y'all. He's saving a bride, which is a gathering of His people, His body. And so in that, 
We live this life for Jesus together, not in isolation. Many people live this private, personal faith portion in isolation. Listen, part of the reason we have a hard time doing life together beyond being busy is our culture does not encourage vulnerability, which is foundational to authentic community. Until we can own and stop putting on masks and be behaving like we have it more together than we really do, until we stop playing games and stop playing perfection and start owning the fact that we're humans and we struggle and that we suffer and that we need Christ, until we do that, authentic community is not going to happen. Now hear me, I'm not saying being so authentic where we just vomit all of our problems on people. What I am advocating though is that we don't pretend like we're better off than we really are. That we become more aware of our situation and our struggles and we come together hoping for a solution. But here's the deal. We've got to be careful because a lot of times authentic community for people is we hope in other people to make it right. You will be disappointed 100% of the time. Other people were never meant to save you. That's why we say Christ exalting life together. That ultimately when people come to us, we are a surrogate, a midwife, a tour guide pointing people to the one that can help. Standing with them, hoping with them, and encouraging them. But the unifying person is Jesus. We see ourselves as a team of missionaries together using our unique gifts as the body parts of Christ. Coming together as His body. Currently we have 12 community groups. And on paper we have high participation. Meaning most of you who are members here have a community group that you say you're a part of. Doesn't mean you show up very often. But we, on paper, many of us have community groups. That's one of the avenues by which we intentionally... So when we started Christ Community Church, we had two primary focuses. Sunday morning gathering, community groups. Sunday morning gathering, community groups. Sunday morning gathering and... Sunday morning gathering and community groups. We've had people leave the church after being here for members for a couple of years because we never put together Sunday school. I can assure you I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I've never told somebody we would do Sunday school. Not that Sunday school is bad, but I think community groups allow us to scale and reach more people effectively long term. My hope is that as we mature and we're encouraging each other towards growth, that in your groups, as much as you love being together, the urge to make disciples, the desire to make an impact leads you to multiply. Everyone says, we don't want our group to split. I don't want your group to split either. That's negative. I want your groups to multiply. I want you to be sent. I want you to be a team of missionaries saying, we've got to reach this neighborhood. Let's go. Let's go figure it out. Let's make it happen. Rather than creating these inwardly focused holy huddles. And short term, that's important. I know several of our groups have groups of people who have been wounded through life and ministry and circumstances. We need a season, a year or two maybe, to just gather and to heal and to be cared for and learn to care for each other again and learn ministry rhythms that are healthy and life-giving rather than life-taking. That's fine, but there must come a point. My vision is that a lot of our community group growth isn't just from us saying we have to start another group. Uh, Dave, you'll do. Go, go start another group. But that groups are growing saying, hey, you know, we've, got, we've got 22 adults here. We love being together. We encourage each other. Either that's a church plant core group, which I'm okay to talk about, but still needs to multiply. Multiplication. We live a Christ-exalting life together. A Christ-exalting life is a life on mission. Number four is this. We serve and give selflessly. And in parentheses, I want to put joyfully. 
Y'all serve, you give. But my hope as we grow as a church that we serve and we give, not out of obligation or duty, but out of great delight in response to who God is and what God has accomplished. That the Acts 2 idea of responding to who God is compels us to these things. We live in a highly transactional, consumeristic culture. We've had people leave the church saying, we want to go somewhere where, where we don't have to do anything. Okay. There's plenty of those opportunities for you. But I don't think that's going to help your faith long term. It just teaches you to be a more knowledgeable consumer. Rather than a Christian that's growing into the image of Christ. Christ leads us into sacrifice. Christ leads us to be challenged. Christ is our rest. Christ is our challenger. And so, because we live in a transactional culture, we, we have folks who may be like, man, I, you're asking too much. You're asking me to serve once a month. Too much. You're asking me to give 10% of my income to the church. Too much. Humanistically speaking, yeah. A nonprofit organization that's not offering you anything tangible in return, other than some services like Sunday morning, that's a lot. But when we look at Christ... The one that we are gathering to worship, and we follow in his footsteps, the joy that comes from understanding that we were enemies of God, but now adopted in as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, begins to shift our perspective. It begins to change our motivation. It begins to give us a deeper source of joy, where sacrifice becomes a habit and discipline towards greater intimacy with Christ. I don't want to burn you out. The last thing we want from a church is to burn you out. Our desire is that you might know Christ more intimately when the, the culture of comfort is choking us out. It's choking us out. I believe as we grow in gospel centrality, that will lead towards maturity that will lead us to joyful service and giving as a response, not a requirement of our faith, but a response to the object of our faith. The who of our faith will lead us to then generous serving and giving. And currently, we have a high amount of involvement both in serving and giving. Thank you. But that's one of the dashboards we're looking at. But, but Mark, just to give you some practical things, what does this look like growing in joyful serving? That Saturday night, you actually go to bed a little bit earlier. And my wife and I fail at that sometimes. But sometimes you go to bed earlier so that you can be up on time and you can show up ready to serve. That you come here understanding that the little part you're doing may not show much response at the end of the hour and a half that you're serving back in kids, but can make a profound eternal impact for the rest of these children's lives and maybe impact their children and their grandchildren. And so we begin to, because of Jesus, because of the gospel, reorient our lives, not just showing up. And I appreciate you showing up. I do. But there's more of that. When was the last time you just went and read a psalm uh, Sunday morning before you get ready, before you wake up the kids, you just read a psalm saying, God, prepare my heart that I might enter into worship expectant to meet with you. Or confessing your unbelief. I'd love it. I know there's people in a room this size of people that don't believe Christ is the Lord. But maybe your prayer would be, God, if you're true, show yourself to me today. And if you're a believing spouse with an unbelieving spouse, maybe your prayer is, God, show up today. 
in a real way in his or her life. This idea, look, we give and we serve, so I'm not down on you. I think we're, we're doing pretty well on this gauge. I would like to experience more joy in what we're doing because the more we have a proper theological, that means knowledge of God view of how we're serving and giving, the more joy it does produce. Even in the midst of sacrifice. Number five is this. We prepare the next generation. We prepare the next generation. Two main obstacles I've identified in our culture and community in not taking responsibility for preparing. And so boys and girls, I'm talking about you. You're the next generation. You're the future pastors and elders and deacons and leaders in the church. Preparing the next generation, there's two primary obstacles I see. Abdication, meaning removing responsibility from yourself and placing it on public organizations or private organizations, putting all responsibility on other people and other things, the church, the school, everything else. So that's abdication. Another challenge we have is entertainment. I've had people say, we don't go here because my kid doesn't think it's fun. Not necessarily about C3, but I've heard that about here. They don't think it's fun. Boys and girls, I need you to stop coloring for a second and look up here. Not everything is going to be fun. That doesn't mean it's not good. God is good. God loves you. God pursues you even when you don't know about him or care about him. He loves you. He sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise again so that you might be forgiven by God and given the promise of forever life with God. That may not always feel fun or seem fun, but it's more than fun. The worst thing we can do for our kids is entertain them all the time. Sometimes Braylon comes to me and says, Dad, I'm bored. And I say to her, what? Good. Good. Sometimes we need to be bored so we know when things are fun, because otherwise, what are we doing? We're always chasing fun. And maybe that's why students are addicted to cell phones and to drugs and to pornography and everything else, is because they always need to be stimulated with something. Sometimes you just need to be bored, boys and girls. Sometimes you just need to be alone. Because in those spaces, that's where God enters in and calls you to more of life that gives you joy. We're preparing the next generation. I want to see fifth and sixth graders as they go into 56 ministry start saying, hmm, and I'm just casting vision for you fifth and sixth graders. Man, I would love to help the four-year-old sometime. And just go play with them and love them and talk to them about Jesus. We have my friend Jordan Bowers. He's serving with the 56 ministry, and he's a junior in high school to invest in the younger generations. We don't wait to teach people to invest in the lives of others when they're older and have to work backwards. We, we, as we're going, we're making disciples, and part of making disciples in authentic community is casting vision and giving opportunity for people to learn their gifts that God has given to them and redeemed them in Christ to begin to exercise them age-appropriately. So that whether they go to school or they're homeschooled or they're in karate class or they have friends or they're serving somewhere, they're able to understand their faith, articulate their faith, and see lives change because of the gospel. 
Currently, the way that we are prioritizing preparing the next generation is we hired Wendy Galloway as our full-time C3 Kids coordinator. She's doing a phenomenal job. We're starting 56 ministries for 5th and 6th graders to equip them in an age-appropriate context to understand what it means to honor and serve Jesus. Our student ministry is going, and, and over the next year, we're going to prioritize building and ramping that up. And our hope is that people move from pitching in to intentionally investing in the next generation, that we have the future of church planters here in this room today. That part of preparing, part of equipping isn't some passive uh, you know, mindset, but it's proactive, that we're taking responsibility together to disciple and to grow so that the next generation of the church isn't as bad off as our generation is. Don't we want better for our next generation? And so to combat the culture of abdication, meaning give someone else the responsibility and entertainment, we want to come in and say, hey, we want to come alongside mom and dad and families and single parents and orphans and give an opportunity for the next generation to meet with Christ beginning here and then Lord willing around the world. We prepare. We're intentional about it. We're not just trying to entertain the kids so that we bring their families in. We're trying to reach families so that they can take responsibility of their spiritual development. We prepare the next generation. And finally this, we are hospitable and helpful. That's a cultural thing. That's a gauge thing. New people, if you're here and no one has greeted you today, please forgive me. If you're here by yourself and no one's offered to sit with you from the stage, I'm sorry. If you're watching this video you've visited before and haven't felt thoroughly gret, greeted, Might have George W. that one made up a word, but then, then forgive us. We're still, we're not there fully yet. We're growing there. We're, we're taking responsibility. It's weird. I, I'm more of an extrovert and I attract a bunch of introverts. If you're an introvert, would you raise your hand slightly? I don't want to embarrass you because you're an introvert, but would you be like, yeah, look around, bunch of introverts. We're almost going to start a ministry of extroverts just so I know who I can ask to like go say hi to somebody. <laughs> would you mind saying hello? Oh my gosh, why? Oh. <laughs> I'd rather give money. I don't know. Yeah, it's like, it's like the worst. That's why during our greeting time, it's usually like, uh, introverts. We're hospitable, but we're also helpful in our hospitality. Unhelpful hospitality is like, hey, come in, do whatever you want. Who cares? No, hospitality has vision. That we're welcoming to strangers and we're welcoming to one another with the hope of helping people grow in their walk with God to be made disciples in authentic community, be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. The problem is our culture is highly guarded, we're private, and we're insecure. And what we have a tendency to do is take our own insecurity and project the worst case scenario on other people and then believe that about them. And as Christ calls us to freedom from ourselves and freedom from the mirror, we're then able to engage in meaningful, life-giving conversations with each other. We, we begin to understand that, hey, as we were welcoming all types of people from all different backgrounds, hoping that they meet Jesus in a consequential way, that we don't take ourselves so seriously, but understand that, hey, as a follower of Jesus, we get to serve as a tour guide or a midwife, coming along and assisting people in their walk with Jesus. Currently, I believe we're growing and cultivating a welcoming environment. But I really want us to be mindful of who have I welcomed today? Who have I made at home? Look, if we are C3, we're, we're not done yet. And I'm not saying growing for growth's sake. I've never been about growing just for growth's sake. I want to see lives transformed by the gospel and people mature into the fullness of their faith. 
My hope is that no one's alone, no one sits alone, no one goes at it alone. If someone's struggling, they don't have to struggle alone. It doesn't mean that we fix, but that we point them to the one who can, that we come alongside and provide uh, felt needs when we can help. That would be unique in this area. The Woodlands area reminds me sometimes of the Hunger Games, the capital. <laughs> Boys and girls, you haven't watched it yet, but your parents can be like, yeah, it's, it's kind of accurate. And everyone's fighting to survive. Everyone's putting on pretense. Christ is better. That's our hope. And so as we gauge through the, the different gauges that we're, we're checking our vision and making sure, are we making disciples in an authentic community? We're, we're, we're striving towards that. We're not there yet, but we're going to fight for that through 2020 and beyond. We're going to become a place of prayer. We are going to become um, increasingly aware and broken for the lost as we grow in understanding who Christ is and His desire for this area. We're going to live a Christ-exalting life together, as messy as it is, like a family. We're going to serve and give selflessly and joyfully we're going to prepare the next generation, and we're going to be a people that, because Christ was first hospitable to us, his enemies, we will then grow in learning to be hospitable to others. I know, look, none of this is unique. So you're like, well, that sounds like pretty much what everybody else is doing. Yeah. Acts chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4, with a dash of Hebrews 10, and the rest of the pages. I'm not going to come up with a new novel. Oh, blank church. We're going to have massager chairs with cup holders. Sorry, honey. Steph wants cup holders. We're going to honor Jesus and go after what the scriptures say. It's going to be countercultural. It's going to be lonely at times, but it's worth it. Looking back on church planting, when I tell people I, plant, I planted a church, they say, oh, that's hard. And yeah, it is. But that's not where I find life in focusing on how hard it is. Where I find life is focusing on how good God is. And I forget that. But God is good, and he saves us and redeems us, not on layaway for heaven, but to begin to get in the game now. And that's what I want for 2018. That's what I want for 2019 and 2020, that I would encourage you, look, look at your life and look at your schedule and look at your budget and look at your heart and look at your mind saying, how can I reorganize my life to prioritize Jesus and begin to care about what he cares about? Making disciples in an authentic community doesn't happen overnight. It takes years, but that's where we're going, and I hope you'll join us. Let's pray.